0: In keeping with their time-tested support for things bipartisan, corporate media saluted the passage through Congress of the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade deal. The New York Times called it a big economic win for Donald Trump, who NPR says can say he has fulfilled his pledge to get tough on trade and eliminate bad deals made by his predecessors. NPR ends by noting that the agreement, some call NAFTA 2.0, includes provisions on things like the ozone layer and fisheries. Quote, but that hasn't been enough to satisfy environmental groups, close quote, who say it encourages pollution and doesn't address the climate crisis. Those critical of original recipe NAFTA were likewise consigned to the last but some people paragraphs of news stories and described as opposing trade rather than promoting a vision of it that places people and the environment above corporate profits. USMCA, as it's known, is on Trump's virtual desk as we speak on January 23rd, here to suggest some questions we could be asking about it is Manuel Pérez Rocha. He's an associate fellow of the Institute for Policy Studies and an associate of the Transnational Institute. He joins us now by phone from Maryland. Welcome to Counterspin, Manuel Pérez Rocha.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Jenny.
0: Well, in your recent article for Inequality.org, also on IPS's site and Truthout, You say that USMCA, which was supported by the AFL-CIO and lots of Democrats, is better in some ways than NAFTA, but remains a handout to large corporations, in particular around the area of investor rights. I hope listeners will remember the outrage that NAFTA sanctioned, allowing corporations to sue governments if a regulation about air quality, for instance, cuts into their profits or reduces the value of their investments. It's called Investor State Dispute Settlement, or ISDS. So what would change under this deal with regard to investor rights and that whole ISDS thing?
1: What the USMCA creates is three distinct investment protection regimes in North America. One is a regime between the United States and Canada in which ISDS no longer exists. That is definitely a positive step. Many substantive investment protections, though, will remain, but they will need to be handled on national courts or local courts or through state-to-state mechanisms rather than through international, supranational tribunals, like with NAFTA. And then there is a system for Mexico and the United States in which ISDS persists. And this is a very strong step backwards because it really makes what I would say a neocolonial distinction. Rich countries amongst themselves are using less and less ISDS, but it is very notable that it's being imposed towards global south country, which is Mexico, and in particular it is very concerning for ecological reasons. But I will touch about that later. The third other relation is between Canada and Mexico is not under the USMCA but ISDS persists under the Trans Pacific Partnership of which Mexico and Canada are members. The United States is not. Trump also pulled out the United States from the Trans Pacific Partnership. And this is very concerning also because the great destruction of the Mexican environment by Canadian mining companies. So all in all, Mexico remains on their ISDS, whether under the USMCA or the TPP, and is very concerning, particularly for environmental reasons.
0: Well, I want to draw you out on this point that I found really interesting and disturbing. You, you note that developed countries are increasingly pulling out of ISDS among themselves, but not with regard to the global south. I mean, in one way, when we talk about this stuff, we we're, we're, we seem to be talking about a kind of supra-sovereignty of corporations, free floating capital versus governments. But then within that, there's still this north versus south or developed versus developing dynamic going on, right? I mean, no Mexican company has ever won a case versus the U.S. or a European country.
1: Yeah, the vast majority of cases are European or United States companies suing countries of the global south. There are very few cases of companies of the global south suing countries in the north because there's not such capacity and, and such power to, to you know, hire such expensive lawyers and so on this is really concerning that the continuation of this neocolonial system is not being dismantled and only countries in the north are starting to get rid of ISDS amongst themselves. The European Union, for example, is starting to cancel all its internal bilateral investment treaties among their countries. Also countries like New Zealand and Australia uh, managed to not get investor protection with a free trade agreement with the European Union under the argument that they have robust local courts and robust legal systems. But the case that I would like to make is that the countries in the north should help countries in the south to strengthen their internal legal systems instead of just bypassing them. With ISDS.
0: Well, the example of mining in Mexico really illustrates what this can look like, and I know your report, Extraction Casino, explores this. Mining companies file suits against Latin American countries because, you know, why not? They, they might not win, but they have the time and the money to just, you know, roll the dice on it. But the people at the sharp end are communities that are trying to protect their land or trying to protect their health. The, the deck is really stacked
1: here. Yeah, exactly. In the report to Extraction Casino, we examine 38 cases of mining companies, mostly from Canada or the U.S., that have been filing dozens of multimillion-dollar claims against Latin American countries. The World Bank's International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes, or ICSID. This is where most of the suits come. This is a really assault against the self-determination of countries when they try to enact responsible environmental policies or other kind of policies in the public interest. And Mexico just last year received two huge cases of two U.S. companies, two mining U.S. companies under NAFTA. One is called Vulcan and the other one is called Odyssey for the total amount of $4 billion. I didn't say million, I say billion dollars. That's a huge amount that many countries just cannot be subject to particularly poorer countries, like countries in Central America, where I've worked a lot, and other countries in Africa, for example, or Pakistan, that also received a $4 billion demand. And this is really provoking, more than anything, what is called a regulatory chill. It's withdrawing or subtracting the capacity of governments to enact responsible environmental policies that, above all, help to mitigate the climate crisis that we're living globally.
0: Well, we can't fight climate disruption without reducing the value of somebody's investment, period, you know, right. um, and, and it's bizarre to make laws that environmental laws that corporations can then just dodge by outsourcing. I mean, it, it's as if we're living in different worlds, you know, where the the climate effects or the pollution here don't affect anybody else. Of course, it's not true. But it seems as though the left has been a bit on the back foot in terms of trade and globalization, and I wanted to ask you what a progressive vision of trade policy looks like. How is it different from what we see now?
1: Well, the problem is that future agreements, including the new NAFTA, they're all about expanding more international trade and pushing more for increasing the supply chains. And this is what is really exceeding the planet's ecological limits, We think that a reformed international trading system must be, above all, tolerant of different ideas about how our economies and societies should be organized, and not only under this principle of more trade, more growth is better. So we have lots of proposals. We also have a paper called Beyond NAFTA 2.0, in which in our report, we, among many other things, we propose a new trade treaty framework that supports core progressive policy priorities such as universal health care, strong public services, and robust environmental protection and resolute action on climate change. There is no mention about climate change or the climate crisis in the new NAFTA. It's it's clearly the same pattern of expanding trade, expanding investment, and expanding the depletion of the environment in different countries.
0: Well, finally, my biggest problem with media, I think, has been the way they've played kind of a bait and switch. You know, when NAFTA was coming through, the New York Times said it would bring jobs, wealth, and economic activity throughout the continent. You know, the Washington Post said, opposition to the agreement is rooted in dark forebodings, almost comically out of proportion to possible results. Well, then when NAFTA did not result in jobs, wealth, and economic activity throughout the continent, these media promoters just... turned and said, Oh, but it's not as bad as critics said it would be, you know, they, they just kind of left yeah. their promises behind. And I think trade deals in general are kind of pre approved by the media, you're either a smart person who understands it, or you're a Luddite, you know, with a special interest who's trapped in the past. I wonder what you would like to see journalists do more of or maybe less of in reporting not just on the new NAFTA, but on trade deals in general.
1: Well, what they should do in general is make the connections between the climate crisis that we live in, but also the refugee crisis from countries like Honduras, El Salvador, and what free trade agreements have done in those countries. Nobody talks about CAFTA anymore, the Central American Free Trade Agreement, but that agreement has only worked for the elites of those countries, and it has not given all the jobs that they promised they would do. So there are economic disruptions all over the world, created by free trade agreements and also neoliberal policies and structural adjustment policies enacted from the World Bank and the IMF, there's little connection between the migration crisis, the poverty, rampant poverty in so many countries, and violence, and economics. No? So I think this is something that we don't see in the mainstream media very much.
0: We've been speaking with Manuel Pérez Rocha of the Institute for Policy Studies. You can find the work we've been discussing online at ips-dc.org. Manuel Pérez Rocha, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin.
1: Thank you.